Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Charter Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. So here are the 12 biggest changes that have happened in the property market over the last few years, which I think all investors need to know about. And number one on my list is the changes to mortgage interest tax relief. Now, just to give a little bit of the backstory here, prior to the budget of 2015, an investor, when calculating profits from rents, could offset mortgage interest when calculating that profit. So in effect, you could take the rent from the property, deduct the mortgage interest, and what was left over, less other costs, would be what you paid tax on. Now in 2015, the budget of 2015, and then Chancellor George Osborne, bless his soul, I don't know why he did this, he decided that he would restrict the amount of mortgage interest that an investor could offset against rent. Now that in itself is quite a bland statement, it didn't take me very long to say it, but the repercussions in the property world are immense and caused a bit of a seismic shock, really. Now, the thing is, I don't think that all landlords and investors, particularly those who owned property in 2015, have really woken up yet to the implications and the ramifications of that, and we'll think about that in a moment. But here's the thing. It was quite a change in the way that the taxation system in the UK actually works, because for the first time ever, a business I'm calling property a business because for most of us it is, for the first time ever a business is effectively being taxed on turnover and not on profit. Just let that sink in. We're being taxed on turnover, not on profit. So there are investors in the UK who going forward, they're going to pay more tax than they would do if they were just assessed purely on the profits that they're making. Is that right? Is that wrong? Well, as an investor, I'd say it's very, very wrong. And it's interesting that there's been a campaign, there's been a lot of talk about this in the press, there's been sort of pressure groups formed to talk to MPs. They don't seem very interested. They don't seem to understand. The interesting thing is, though, that I think that there's probably a lot of investors and a lot of landlords who don't quite understand. Now, the ability to offset mortgage interest against our rent when calculating profit hasn't been taken away in one hit, it's been phased in, reducing by 25% each year until we get to 2020. After 2020, you won't be able to offset any mortgage interest against your rent. Until then, each year that goes by, you'll be able to offset 25% less. So in the last tax year, you could offset 75% of your mortgage interest, this tax year 50%, next year 25%, and so on. Until we get down to past 2020, when you won't be able to offset any mortgage interest. Now, for a lot of landlords, for a lot of investors, this is going to cause a massive hike in their tax bill. It's because of the way that tax is calculated, it's actually going to take some investors into a completely different or higher tax bracket, which they may not be expecting. And I think one of the practical implications of this is that a lot of landlords have panicked and have started to sell. Those who haven't quite woken up to it yet will presumably panic and sell 
in the future. Now, whether that was George Osborne's intention or not, I don't know. Whether he was trying to disincentivize new investors coming into the market, whether he was trying to drive old and existing investors out of the property market, I don't know. There was a lot of talk about having a level playing field with owner-occupiers who might want to buy. I don't know what his motivations are. But I think that the implications are quite profound unless things change. So what I'm seeing at the moment, and I don't know whether you're seeing the same thing, but in the area where I invest, there's quite a lot of properties going to auction, more than usual. And my guess is it's probably disillusioned landlords who suddenly filled in their tax return and realised that because of the way things are going, they're going to end up paying more and more tax and keeping less and less money. In fact, they could end up where properties are going to be producing a negative cash flow for them once they take into account their tax position. And I think that's why I'm seeing in my investment area a lot more properties being sold. Maybe you're seeing the same way you invest. Now, obviously, this really, from the point of view of the existing investors, from those who are selling, it's a sad situation. And I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but I suppose being practical about it, for those of us who are thinking of buying, it actually gives an opportunity to perhaps source properties, to be able to buy properties at a reasonable price, and maybe be able to help somebody out of a problem which they suddenly found themselves in. Now, the great thing is property investors, by and large, as a group, are very adaptable. And one of the things that has happened post-2015 when the implications of the change became apparent, is that investors have been looking for ways to be able to mitigate this. And one of the main ways that investors are mitigating this now is to buy their properties into a limited company. So whereas before we might have bought properties in our own name, a lot of investors are now setting up a limited company and buying their properties into the limited company. Why are they doing that? Because as things stand at the moment, if you buy into a limited company, the limited company can still offset all, yes, I repeat that, all of the mortgage interest against rent when calculating the profits for corporation tax, which is the good news. The bad news is, though, that because it's a limited company, it will be charged corporation tax, albeit corporation tax rates are, generally speaking, lower than income tax rates. That's good. But the difficulty investors will have is when they want to take their money out of a limited company because it's at the point you take your money out of the limited company, guess what, you get taxed. So we're not going to avoid tax altogether. And I'm not an accountant, I'm not an IFA, so I'm not going to go into all the details of that now. Point is that there are ways of mitigating it, but unfortunately there isn't a perfect scenario. We're not going to be able to avoid tax altogether. But it seems that buying our properties into a limited company at least helps mitigate a lot of the problem. Now, for those of us who've already got properties, what are we going to do? Well, it is possible to move properties in your own name into a limited company. The thing is, from HMRC's point of view, the limited company is a different entity from you, the owner, and so there's a deemed disposal, a deemed transaction. So, in the normal course of things, you could end up paying capital gains tax and or stamp duty when you transfer your properties. But there are ways of getting around that, ways of mitigating that, which I won't go into now. If you listen to some of the other material that's out there, for example, I know that Mark Homer on his podcast has interviewed a couple of accountants and can put you in touch with people who can help you to arrange this and organise this and help you to mitigate any tax consequences of moving your properties into a limited company. There's lots of material out there, lots of people out there who will be able to help you 
not myself because I'm not an accountant, but there are accountants out there who are specialists in this. It can be done. So that's a massive change. What's it going to mean going forward? Well, I think one of the big changes is obviously the way that we hold our properties. As I say, more people are putting their properties into limited companies. The way that the mortgage companies are putting together products is changing. Uh, a lot of mortgage companies are waking up to the point that they're going to have to lend to more limited companies. And so one would assume that products, buy-to-let products, for example, for limited companies will become easier to obtain. There'll be more choice. There'll be more options available for us. So it's going to make quite a big change. But I think one of the biggest changes for us as existing investors or perhaps looking to get into buying properties now is that there'll probably be more existing landlords and investors looking to sell because they didn't realise this was coming. Perhaps they've just suddenly woken up to the fact that on their last tax return for the last tax year, the amount of tax they're paying has suddenly gone up and they can suddenly see this isn't going to get any better, it's only going to get worse over the next few years. I think there'll be some really great buying opportunities to be able to buy from existing landlords who perhaps haven't taken the advice that they need to take on how to mitigate what's happening. So that's change number one. The second change, which I think is very significant, again, it involves taxation and how much money you're going to be able to keep once you've actually calculated uh, how much tax you need to pay on your tax return, is the end of the wear and tear allowance. And again, if you're not interested in tax, it can all sound a little bit boring, but we need to know this stuff. Because until 2016, landlords who were letting properties furnished could deduct 10% of the annual rent from their profits before they paid tax. And that 10% was to account for wear and tear to the furnishings and fixtures and fittings. The key thing about this, which was very interesting, is that the wear and tear allowance was permitted regardless of whether the landlord had actually spent any money on furnishings that year. So basically, this meant that regardless of what you did with the property and regardless of what furniture you bought or didn't buy, you could just deduct 10% of the rent before you started calculating your tax. Well, it sounds too good to be true, and I guess the government were going to catch on to this in the end, and that's now been withdrawn. It means that now, under the new rules, we can only deduct the cost of replacing or repairing household items on a like-for-like -like basis. So you actually have to spend the money before you can offset it against the rent, which I guess is fair. But if you've got used to deducting your 10% every year, that's a little bit of a blow, something we need to know about. Number three on our list, and who would have seen this coming? Right to rent checks. February 2016, right to rent legislation came into force, which means that landlords have to make sure that their tenants have the legal right to live in the UK. So effectively, whether we like it or not, whether we knew it or not, we've now all become instruments of the Foreign Office, checking on people's immigration status. Who would have thought that? Who would have seen that coming? So what does this mean? Well, it means that basically before you let a property out, you or your managing agent has to check the passport or the visa paperwork of a prospective tenant before you can give them a tenancy agreement to make sure that they are legally entitled to be in the UK. Now, obviously, if you have a managing agent, they'll be doing this for you, but you need to be making sure that the managing agent is doing it and doing it properly. Because if you're found to be letting to a tenant who's living in the UK illegally, you could face a fine of up to £3,000. 
So there we go. Number four on our list is the proliferation of councils who are now introducing landlord licensing. Now, across the UK, there is no, as I speak at the moment, as I record this podcast, there is no blanket licensing arrangement across the UK. In pockets there are, if you go to Wales, if you go to Scotland, then you have to be properly licensed. In England, as things stand, it's down to local authorities to choose whether they want to introduce licensing. Now, all councils have had the option of introducing selective licensing for quite some time. Some of the properties which I own are in areas where there's selective licensing. They're areas which are deemed to be of low value, and the council require myself or my managing agent to hold a license If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. which ensures really that the properties are well looked after, that the tenants are well looked after. But it's only in very particular areas. For example, I invest up in Newcastle and there's just a few areas of Newcastle, a few streets where the council have introduced selective licensing. It's not a blanket license across the whole of Newcastle. However, some councils are introducing blanket licensing. And I'm sure that over the next few years, we'll see this happening more and more. So, for example, in Liverpool, I understand that there's a sort of blanket licensing requirement. In Nottingham, at the moment, there's talk that the council there are going to bring in a requirement for all landlords to be licensed. And that's the key point. It's not just one or two landlords being required to have a license in very particular areas. It will be all landlords in the whole of that local authority's jurisdiction will have to apply for a license. Now, does this matter in practice? Well, probably not a great deal, other than it's more red tape. There's a lot of form filling. The last time I applied for a selective license, for example, I think it was a 34-page form, can you believe? It took a little bit of filling out. And most of the questions to me seemed totally irrelevant to what I was doing and totally irrelevant to the property, but there we are. They still had to be filled in. Key thing, of course, though, is that when you put in an application, you have to pay a fee. So if you have multiple properties and you have to pay multiple fees, then for a month or two, that could be quite a severe drain on your cash flow, which you'll need to be budgeting for. Now, it tends to be that the license will last for five years, but I guess that in time, local authorities may come up with their own requirements on that. Maybe it'll be five years. Maybe you'll have to renew them every year or every couple of years. I don't know. But whatever, there's a fee to be paid every time you 
either apply or every time you renew. Now, to all intents and purposes, being a little bit controversial, which I think I'm allowed to be, I asked, what is the point? The local authorities would argue that it's to make sure that the landlords are fit and proper, that landlords look after their properties, that the landlords look after their tenants. And I can see that that's all good. But the reality is, and this is me being perhaps a little bit cynical, it's also another form of tax by another name, really, if you think about it, a stealth tax. And that's what worries me, because depending upon who the politicians are at the time, how much are they going to make those fees? How often are we going to have to renew? All questions that which maybe we need to address at some point. But it's certainly becoming more and more common that local authorities are beginning to introduce licensing. And I expect that to continue. Here's another one. Number five on our list is the lettings fee ban. Now, this hasn't actually happened yet. At the time of recording this podcast, it's a stated intent by the government that they're going to restrict the fees that a letting agent can charge a tenant. And, you know, I can see how this has happened. I can see that there's been some shenanigans, some silliness on the part of some letting agents. Not all of them, by the way. This isn't a criticism of letting agents, but it's like all these things. A few bad apples can ruin it for everybody. And some letting agents were charging tenants or prospective tenants to make an application to see what properties they had available, which is craziness, isn't it? I can see why that would be very upsetting. I know, for example, my, my niece, a very personal example, was looking for a property to rent, and she was charged, I think, 250 quid by the letting agent before the letting agent would even let the, her see the details of any properties. So money for old rope. And in time, it was probably all going to come a cropper, and it has. So the government have basically said that they're going to ban letting agents from charging fees to tenants. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. So watch this space. Now, what will be the effect of that? Well, letting agents still need to make money. And as somebody who wants to be passive in property, as somebody who doesn't want to let my own properties and manage my own properties, I want letting agents to flourish. So how are they going to make their money? Well, the chances are that what they used to charge the tenants or prospective tenants, they're going to have to charge the landlord. So it will be presumably passed on to the landlord by means of higher fees to landlords, whether that be letting fees or whether it be managing fees, managing agents' fees. But the money's got to come from somewhere. It's a business and we wouldn't expect them to do it for nothing. If the ban comes into place, we're probably looking at about 2018, so probably sometime next year then that ban will come into place. So watch this space. Number six on my list, energy efficiency regulations. So from April 2018, any properties which are rented out privately must have a minimum energy performance rating of E on an energy performance certificate, on an EPC. So what does this mean? Well, it means when you're buying your investment properties, you need to make sure that the property that you're buying has a rating of E, or if you're going to refurb it, when you've done the refurb, it's going to have a minimum rating of E. If you have existing properties, you need to make sure that they have an E on the EPC, which hopefully you already hold because it's illegal to let a property out without an EPC. So I'm sure you've got one. If you haven't got one, get yourself one. Make sure you've got one. You need them you need to have an energy efficiency rating of E. If you haven't got an energy efficiency rating of E, you cannot let the property out. 
So this rule is going to apply to new tenancies from April 2018 and for existing tenancies from April 2020. So if you have a property which is let out at the moment and you have a long-term tenant in there, then look at the EPC. If they're an existing tenant and you think they're going to still be around, then you're probably okay until 2020, but you need to do something with the property and bring it up to scratch. If you're letting the property from April next year, 2018, the property has to, by that time, have an energy efficiency rating of E. And if you ignore this, you, again, you, there could be a big fine. Fines of up to £4,000 can be imposed on landlords who ignore this. So we need to be thinking about this. But what can we do to improve the energy efficiency of our properties? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be hard. And if you're going to buy the property to refurb it anyway, then a lot of the stuff that you'd need to do to increase its energy efficiency rating you'll be doing anyway such as putting in new windows, upgrading or installing the central heating system, for example. All that stuff's going to help. Maybe it's a case of cavity wall insulation, insulating the loft, all that kind of thing is going to help. So it's not particularly hard to do, and it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. Just putting the right valves on your radiators could make a big difference to the energy rating, the energy performance rating but it's something which we need to think about. Otherwise, we'll be in breach and we're potentially subject to a big fine. Number seven on the list. Well, it's not so much a change because there is a constant murmur in the background about this, but the government published in February this year the Housing White Paper talking about fixing Britain's broken housing market. Now, for as long as I've been in property, politicians have been chuntering on in the background about fixing Britain's broken housing market seems to be a theme which everybody wants to talk about but nobody actually wants to do anything about. Reality is, what do you do about it? Primarily, probably, is sorting out the planning system and making sure that land's freed up for house building, but they're very political hot potatoes, aren't they? Can we really build on the green belt? Do we want to build on the green belt? Can we really streamline the planning system? How would local authorities feel about having central government impose new rules on them which took away the local authorities' rights to restrict what happens in their areas? There's a lot of stuff there which is quite controversial and you can see why government after government has given lip service to this but not actually done anything about it. But the chances are, at some point in the future, a government of some type is going to have to grasp the nettle and do something because, without a doubt, so we're told there is a housing crisis. Now, just being a little bit controversial about this, in my view, there actually isn't a housing crisis. It's an economic crisis. The reality is that the further north you go in this country, the more land there is and the more vacant properties there are. The thing is, though, everybody wants to live in the south and the southeast, or so it seems. Why is that? Because that's where all the jobs are. So, in my view, it's not really a housing crisis. It's an economic crisis. Government, make the jobs go up north. There's plenty of room and plenty of houses we can all spread out and live happily with lots more space rather than to trying to jam ourselves all into London and the southeast. There you are. Any politicians listening? That's the answer. My view. Number eight. Here's something which happens from time to time. We're beginning to see it now, possibly, and that is a property market slowdown. So what's been happening? Well, after the recession, of sort of 2007, 2008, after the credit crunch, after the property market fell in 2007, 2008, 
In parts of the country, the property market picked up again and recovered. So if you look at London over the last few years, up until about a year ago, the London property market was booming. It wasn't necessarily booming across the whole country, but it was certainly booming in London and the southeast. What's happened since? Well, about a year ago, you'll see that the London property market has taken a dip. Now, interestingly, other parts of the country are actually still powering ahead. The northwest, for example, around Manchester, doing well at the moment. In the Midlands, the property market is doing quite well at the moment. Other areas, such as the northeast, which I know very well because that's where I invest, not doing so well, not falling, just not growing perhaps as quickly as the northwest. Where the property market has taken a dip, though, is in London, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Could be Brexit, could be foreign investors not coming in. At one stage, foreign investors were buying loads and loads of property in London. Why were they doing that? Because London's seen as a safe haven. So foreign investment, that was driving the London market, but that's cooled off over the last year or so. And what we're seeing now is that the prices have fallen in London, I think over the last month or so, they've probably sort of plateaued again, but they've plateaued at a lower level. A new peak was created after the peak of 2007, 2008. Now, traditionally, what tends to happen is what happens in London ripples out across the rest of the country. So the rises that we're seeing in property values in the Northwest, for example, in the Midlands, is probably evidence of the ripple from when prices were rising in London but the ripple moves out across the country. So in the Midlands, for example, in the Northwest, rises might actually kick in two or three years after the rises in London. So what we'll see is property prices are now beginning to dip and plateau in London. They will dip and plateau in the rest of the country, but maybe not for a few years. And in the meantime, in the rest of the country, maybe prices will just keep moving up and up and up. That ripple will eventually get further north, get to the northeast, for example, and we'll start to see prices rising there probably. But transaction levels as a whole, we can see in a couple of years' time, two or three years' time across the country, will probably plateau and dip because that's what we've seen in London. Number nine on my list, another technical point around the Section 21 eviction process. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you let a property out on an assured short-hold tenancy, like a typical buy-to-let property will have an assured short-hold tenancy, if you need to get the property back, if you need to evict the tenant, then the main way of doing that would be a Section 21 notice. Now, there's a Section 8 procedure. I'm not going to talk about that at the moment. Let's just think about the Section 21 eviction process. So, in theory, Section 21 allows a landlord to take possession of their property back without necessarily having to give a reason for taking the property back. You just want the property back and that's fine. And if you serve a Section 21 notice, if it ended up going to court, then the court should give the landlord possession of the property. It's a mandatory ground, but in other words, the courts have to give landlords possession. That was until 2015, because now the courts will be checking to make sure that there's some preliminary things that you did when you issued the tenancy agreement. Because if you haven't done those things, then your Section 21 notice will be invalid. So what do you need to have done? Well, it's interesting. There's a whole list of things which you need to have done. And it includes things like making sure that there are proper and working smoke alarms in the property. And as you issue the tenancy agreement, you should be there 
on the site with the tenant and you should test the alarms so that the tenant can actually sign off that the alarms are actually working. Now these smoke alarms, they don't have to be hardwired, battery smoke alarms are okay, but you need to make sure you've got them. You need to have a smoke alarm on each floor of the property and they need to be in place and they need to be working. What else do you need to do? Well, you need to provide the tenant with an EPC. We've already just talked about EPCs, an energy performance certificate. And the tenant needs to be able to sign off to say that they've had a copy of that. If there's a gas appliance in the property, you need to be able to provide a gas safety certificate. There's also a little booklet about the rights of renting for tenants, which you can download from government website. You need to be able to make a copy of that available and they have to sign off that you've made a copy of that available. The point is, if you don't do these things, then if you ever need to go to court to get possession of your property and you're found not to have done one of these things, then your Section 21 notice will be ruled invalid until you actually rectify all of this by making sure that you sort of do it after the event and then you have to go back to the court and reapply and hope that they'll accept your retrospective activities to put it all right. At the very least, it's going to cause hassle and delay, so you don't want to do that. Number 10 on my list is about tenancy deposit schemes and tenancy deposit protection. Now, this is nothing new in the sense that if you take a deposit off a tenant, you've needed to protect it and insure it for quite some time. But the ways that that is happening is now beginning to change. There's all sorts of apps that you can now use, for example. There are all sorts of different schemes that are beginning to offer new ways of insuring the tenancy and being touted as a new alternative. So it's important that we keep abreast of this, the latest trends and technologies, because it's changing. Some of it helpful, not helpful if you don't know about it, but you need to make sure that it complies with the legislation as well. So that's an interesting thing that's beginning to happen. So have a look what's out there, see if there's perhaps another way of doing it. You may be able to find you can do it cheaper, you may be able to find that you can do it easier. Number 11 on the list, is all around buy-to-let lending regulations. Now, this has changed an awful lot over the last few years. Last year, the Bank of England announced it was going to introduce tougher new requirements for buy-to-let borrowers. And the new rules require landlords to bring in higher levels of rent relative to their mortgage costs. In addition to that, landlords with four or more properties are going to face additional stress testing and will be required to provide more information about their income and debts what we're calling portfolio borrowers. Now, there's part of me which thinks, why are you doing this, Banks? Because you would imagine, I would have thought anyway, maybe I'm a bit naive, but somebody who's got multiple properties and a proven track record is actually a better bet to lend to than somebody who doesn't have any properties and no track record. But clearly the Bank of England don't agree with that. So they're actually making it harder for landlords with an existing portfolio to borrow. Now, from their point of view, I suppose they'd be saying, well, if you've already got properties, you're stretching yourself quite thin. You can argue it both ways. But this is beginning to happen. So this is a biggie. Let's have a little look at the detail of this, because this is important stuff. So the way that the Bank of England have lent on lenders to restrict and protect the funds that they have is in two ways. Firstly, there's from January 2017, tougher rental cover tests were introduced. So what are the basic rules on rent cover? Well, without getting too technical about it, here's what they said. 
The rent must cover at least 125% of the mortgage payment, but assuming a nominal rate of interest has been charged of 5.5%. Now, when you take out your buy-to-let mortgage, maybe you'll get a good deal, maybe you'll get something at around about 2%. But in deciding whether they're going to lend to you, the bank will assume, just for the purposes of stress testing, that the payment's going to be at, say, 5.5%, and the rent needs to cover at least 125% of the mortgage payment. Thing is, though, some of the lenders are actually not using 125%, some are using 145%. Now, for most properties which I buy, which is sort of sub £100,000, that doesn't cause an issue. But if you're going to be buying properties, perhaps in London or the South East, where you're talking multiple hundreds of thousands of pounds, that 145% rent cover could become an issue and could very much decide the sort of top end of the amount of money that you can actually borrow. As a rough rule of thumb, each £100 of your monthly rent will support roughly £15,000 of borrowing, so you can work it back the other way. So if you have a property which is going to net you £600 monthly rent, for example, then 6 times 15000 is the amount that you'll be able to borrow. So there's quite a neat rule of thumb that you'll be able to use. £500 rent, for example, works out at £75,000 of borrowing. If the property is costing you £100,000, then you're fine on a 75% loan-to-value mortgage. If you're paying more than that, then you'll have to either put in a larger deposit or borrow a small amount of money. It's going to add a restriction, particularly at the top end of the market, as I say. Now, the good news is there are some types of loans that this doesn't actually apply to. Mortgages for limited companies. Well, there's a bit of a relief because, as I said right at the beginning of this podcast, many investors are getting around the changes to the restrictions on tax relief by buying into limited companies. This doesn't apply to limited companies. It doesn't apply to bridging lending. It doesn't apply to commercial or semi-commercial property. It doesn't apply to holiday lets. And here's an interesting one. It doesn't apply to any loans with a fixed term of five years or longer. So there could be an answer. If you're having a little bit of trouble in getting the right amount of money out of the lender, have a word with your broker and see if a five-year fixed will help you because that's an option. For some reason, they're not covered. So that's the first way in which buy-to-let loans are being restricted. The second way, as I've already mentioned, is that portfolio landlord underwriting is changing from September 2017. So the definition of a portfolio landlord is someone who has four or more mortgaged properties. And in this particular instance, properties in a limited company do count towards the total. So whether you have some in your own name or some in a limited company, doesn't really matter. The bank will look at the total number that are under your control. Now, what this means in effect is that they're going to be asking you a lot more questions and asking for more details of your business before they're going to lend you the money. So what are they going to be looking for? Well, it's been suggested by the Prudential Regulation Authority that the banks should be looking for, for example, a property portfolio spreadsheet where they can see details of all of your property assets, a cash flow forecast spreadsheet, an income and expenditure spreadsheet. They might want to see a business plan three months bank statements, SA302s and tax overviews from HMRC and tenancy agreements for all the properties. Now, in itself, that doesn't sound too onerous because those should probably be things that we've got anyway. 
but the point is you're now going to have to make sure that you can provide them in a format that the bank can understand and use. But I think behind that, it's not so much what they want from you, it's why they want it from you. And the reason why they want it from you is because they're going to be slightly more loath, unwilling to lend to investors who already have multiple properties. You've got to make the case now for the loan in the context of your entire rental business. You've got to make the case for the loan in the context of your business and not just in the context of that property. So whereas before, you might go to your broker and say, I'm buying a new property, here's the details of the property, can you get me a buy-to-let mortgage? They now want to see the whole picture, the whole picture of all of your business. Now, as I say, that shouldn't be too hard for us to produce, but there's more excuses probably. The more you give them, the easier they're going to find it to turn your application down. It's certainly going to affect the speed at which you can get money out of a bank now because they're going to have to process more paperwork. As I say, it's going to give them more excuses to decline a loan. And although, again, this doesn't necessarily apply to limited companies and applications for limited companies, they're probably going to want to apply it to limited companies because that's the way the winds are blowing at the moment. We're all becoming more nervous, more cautious, things are becoming more restricted. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 18 months or so. And number 12, last but certainly not least, is the changes to stamp duty, stamp duty land tax, as it's officially known, which came in in April 2016. And again, it's our old friend George Osborne. Why was he doing this? I don't know. I don't know what his motivations were. But he certainly changed the whole way that stamp duty is calculated, particularly for investment properties and second homes. Because here's what he did. He introduced a 3% surcharge on stamp duty for investment properties and second homes. So prior to 2016, if you bought a property, for example, which was worth £125,000 or less, you paid no stamp duty. Now that has all changed because if the property is worth more than £40,000, if it's worth between £40,000 and £125,000, you'll pay 3% in stamp duty. Now the good news is, if the property is worth less than £40,000, there is no stamp duty to be paid. But you might say, well, Peter, can you even buy properties for £40,000 or less? Well, believe it or not, you can. If you want to go up north, and usually the further up north you go, the more chance you have of buying them. I actually bought a property about 18 months ago for £30,000. Now, in fairness, it did need a refurb. I spent 10 grand on it, and when I'd done the refurb, it's probably worth £1,000 plus but I bought it for 30 grand. So yes, you can. You can buy properties for less than 40,000. But probably most of us are not going to be buying properties worth 40,000 pounds. Many more of us are going to be buying properties between 40,000 and 125, and we'll be paying 3% in stamp duty. If the property is worth 125,000 up to 250,000 pounds, the stamp duty payable is 5%. If it's 250,000 up to 925,000, it comes in at a whopping 8%. And then it goes on and on up the scale. And so you get up to over, I think it's 1.5 million, and it's 15% stamp duty. Can you believe that's eye-watering stuff? And it's no wonder that the market in London has taken a bit of a dip when you think that stamp duty rates of 15% have been imposed at the top end of the market. And of course, there's an argument that 
if the top of the market slows, eventually that sort of drips down and, and affects the rest of the market as well. Certainly for a lot of investors, stamp duty has become an issue because if you're doing a refurb, for example, and you want to do the classic BRR buy refurb and refinance model, the extra stamp duty is a significant cost that you're going to have to take into account when doing your figures to work out whether the property actually stacks or not and to work out how much of your money you can actually get back out of the deal. So what can we do about this? Well, not a lot. Write to your MP. There are moves afoot, so campaign groups are beginning to form, pointing out that this is actually killing the property market and that the result has actually not been to increase, allegedly, the amount of revenue that HMRC are taking from property transactions. Allegedly, HMRC are actually taking less money in stamp duty now because fewer people are buying and selling, because they're disincentivized from buying and selling. But what can we do? Well, as property investors, we need to obviously make sure that our figures stack. We need to make sure that when we do our due diligence that we're taking into account all of these costs, which can be significant. But a very practical thing that perhaps we can do is take this into account when we're negotiating to buy the property. If we can negotiate a slightly keener price to mitigate the effect of the stamp duty, that might make our figures stack and make the deal a good deal. So anyway, those are 12 things that have changed over the last few years in property. Are things going to change going into the future? Well, absolutely. The one which I'm always a little bit wary of and, and watching out for is the idea that licensing might become sort of like a national thing, as it is, in, as I understand, in Scotland and Wales. It's only a matter of time, I think, before a government decides that it should be rolled out across England as well. Who knows what's going to happen, though? Who would have thought that landlords would end up vetting foreign tenants to make sure that they had the right to be in the UK? Didn't see that one coming. So who knows what politicians can dream up? But things will change. And actually, that's one of the great things about being involved in property. Things are never static. And usually, as things change, it makes more opportunity, more opportunity for those who are prepared to see them as an opportunity and not as a problem. So... I've been Peter Jones. This has been the Progressive Property Podcast. If you have any ideas for any subjects that you'd like me to cover, let me know. Get in touch via the uh, Facebook group, Progressive Property Community, and I'll have a look at it. And if it looks like a good subject, which will benefit everybody, I may do it as a podcast. Until then, I'll see you at the next podcast. Here's to successful property investing. <laughs>